Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Albany, Indiana is a town of just under 240,000 people, about a 20-minute drive northeast of Muncie and four hours southeast of Chicago. Not unlike many small towns in Maine, in the month of January, Albany experiences an average low of 21 degrees. Maybe unlike Maine, Albany seems an odd place for Atlantic salmon to survive. Utterly landlocked and with lows 18 degrees lower than the coldest temperature these salmon typically tolerate. But with the advent of land-based fish farming, or aquaculture as we will refer to it today, suddenly dreams of fresh salmon for inland markets may be realized. But as with all new innovations, this one does not come without its challenges. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet podcast. My name is Georgia Ray, and I am your host. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with my colleagues Cynthia Harris, Elisa Torres-Soto, and Irene Jandok about a research report all of us worked on and are preparing to release as we record this. Our topic is sustainable land-based aquaculture. We will talk about the best sustainability practices, challenges to implementation, and positive models. Throughout the episode, you will hear from each of us, and at one point, I will actually hand the interview mic over to our wonderful podcast intern, Jenny Sang, and take the interviewee chair myself. We will each talk about various aspects of land-based aquaculture, breaking down the complicated regulatory framework, looking at a couple of facilities here in the United States, and finishing off with best practices for sustainability moving forward. Our first interviewee is Elisa Torresoto. She is a staff attorney here at ELI. Her work currently focuses on domestic and international projects, particularly in the inner American region. Elisa, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me, Georgia. So I wanted to start this episode with you and talk to you first because I feel like you have a knack for setting the scene when it comes to everything aquaculture. So for the newcomers in the audience, what is land-based aquaculture and how does it depart from marine aquaculture? So aquaculture is basically farming in water. It is breeding, raising, and harvesting fish, shellfish, and aquatic plants. And people have engaged in aquaculture for thousands of years. Marine finifish aquaculture is typically done in net pens, which are enclosed floating cages. This cage holds the fish and allows the water to flow through the pen freely. Land-based aquaculture, on the other hand, as the name suggests, is a type of aquaculture that raises marine organisms above ground in artificial ponds or enclosed structures like tanks. Recirculating Aquaculture System, RAS for short, is a type of land-based aquaculture that is sealed off from the natural environment. It replaces the natural flow of the water of the sea or lakes with water filtration and recirculation systems. RAS is distinguished by the reuse of water in the system, often over 90% reuse and sometimes even reaching 99%. This high level of reuse of the water is made possible by mechanical and biological treatments developed to eliminate ammonia, as well as treating pH, controlling temperature, removing solids, adding oxygen and degassing, for example. 
Thank you. I think that was super helpful. Can you continue by giving our listeners a rough sketch of the impetus for our work in particular, our approach and what we found? The growth of the land-based aquaculture sector in the United States, it's an opportunity to assess the regulatory framework governing land-based aquaculture in the country. Our project, Fish Forward, seeks to accomplish this by analyzing where the regulatory gaps are and what are the opportunities for addressing and mitigating the industry's environmental impacts, particularly in finfish production. So what we found is that state and local governments can work within their existing regulatory frameworks to develop standards for land-based finfish RAS based on the best available science and recognize sustainable practices. Policymakers can draw from best practices recognized by international standard-setting bodies and existing land-based finfish RAS facilities to address and mitigate the environmental and social impacts of land-based finfish RAS aquaculture. Your focus throughout the project has been those regulatory frameworks. In particular, you focused on the U.S. federal framework. So what are the strengths and weaknesses in terms of aquaculture regulation in the country right now? The National Aquaculture Act of 1980 Establish aquaculture as a national policy priority in the United States. But aquaculture in the United States is mainly regulated at the state, tribal, and local levels, which means the majority of the laws governing aquaculture in the United States are state laws. The biggest drawback at the moment is that because land-based RAS aquaculture is an emerging industry in the United States, there are major regulatory gaps, not only at the state level, but also at the federal level. The main strength, however, is that the federal government always plays a role in defining the national environmental agenda and creating guidelines for the regulation of industries and their associated impacts to natural resources, the environment, and public health and safety. For example, under Section 402 of the Clean Water Act, Certain aquaculture facilities, which includes land-based aquaculture facilities, of course, are considered point sources, facilities that meet the definition of concentrated aquatic animal production facilities, or CAPS, are aquaculture facilities that annually discharge effluent at least 30 days and produce 20,000 or more pounds of aquatic animals. CAPS are required to obtain a National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System permit or NIPTIS permit from the EPA or the required state agency in cases where the state implements the NIPTIS program. This is an example of the type of oversight authority the federal government has with regards to land-based aquaculture facilities. You also completed deep dives into the Wisconsin and Maine state regulatory frameworks. How do these compare to each other? The aquaculture industry looks very different in both states. In Maine, since it's located in the Atlantic coast, there is a predominance of net pen salmon aquaculture operations. In Wisconsin, 
the aquaculture industry is much smaller and there is a predominance of pond aquaculture. In terms of similarities, both states require a form of registration or license for land-based aquaculture's operations in the state. In Maine, there is a specific license required for land-based facilities called the Marine Organisms Aquaculture License. It is administered by the Department of Marine Resources, DMR, and its purpose is to allow the aquaculture of marine organisms outside of the coastal waters of the state. DMR is authorized to annually monitor the land-based facilities and the licensees are required to issue periodic reports to DMR about their aquaculture practices and production. But because DMR has yet to publish regulations about the marine organisms aquaculture license, it is hard to tell at this point what are the specific environmental impacts that are regulated under the license. In Wisconsin, the Department of Agriculture, Trade and Consumer Protection, DATCP, requires most finfish aquaculture facilities to be registered as fish farms, regardless of whether they are commercial aquaculture operations or not. In Wisconsin, there is slightly more focus on fish health, since in order to register the facility, DATCP first issues a fish health certificate stating that the fish in the facility are free from contagious diseases and infectious diseases such as whirling disease. The fish health certificate is renewed annually. Although going back to Maine, Maine's Department of Marine Resources can deny a marine organism's aquaculture license if it understands that there is a risk of incidental introduction of the fish into coastal waters or there is a risk of introduction or spread of disease. Another similarity is that both Maine and Wisconsin are home rule states which means that local governments have some direct regulatory oversight of land-based aquaculture facilities, mainly through their land use authority. In Maine, there is strong emphasis on the protection of coastal and marine habitats and species from the impacts of major developments like an industrial land-based aquaculture facility. This is reflected in the permits that are required for these facilities, such as the Natural Resources Protection Act permit and the Shoreland Zone Development Permit. Whereas in Wisconsin, this is not really needed because there is no marine environment. When we think about these regulatory schemas more broadly, I know one thing that came up for us a lot in the project is how things change when you are developing multiple facilities around the same time, around the same area. Should there be special considerations in those situations? So the sizes of the facilities are an important consideration. Smaller land-based RAS facilities tend to have higher water reuse rates. Industrial land-based RAS facilities, on the other hand, naturally demand more water and thus discharge more effluents containing nitrogen, phosphorus, pH, and even thermal discharges. Multiple facilities discharging nutrient-heavy effluents may have significant cumulative impacts to the marine and coastal environments if they're located 
within the same area. Also, RAS is an energy-intensive process, so the demand on electricity of multiple industrial facilities connected to the energy grid would definitely impact the state's overall carbon footprint. Well, thank you for all of that information and for talking with me today. Thanks, Georgia. For this segment, I'd like to introduce another person on our team, Jenny. Jenny is a rising senior at UC Berkeley studying environmental science and public policy, and she is our podcast intern for the semester. So now I'll hand the interviewer mic over to Jenny so I can answer some questions about this project myself. Thank you so much for your introduction, Georgia. I'm happy to be here. I'm super excited to close out my last week as an interviewer for this podcast. And so, Georgia, to start us off on this episode, I know that not all RAS is made equal. There's often a misconception that because of the word recirculating, there's no water discharge or effluent from these systems. Can you explain a little more to our audience about the different levels of RAS and how they might be able to categorize different facilities? Definitely. So this is something that we hear a lot from people who are new to the world of recirculating aquaculture systems. So I think a really helpful way to think about it is through the lens of intensity, which is a guideline presented by FAO or the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. When we think about land-based aquaculture or, you know, a term you might be more familiar with is fish farming, you think about your traditional type of fish farming, which is going to be that flow through system. So that's where water is being introduced through the system and then immediately leaves the system after use in the tanks. What makes recirculating aquaculture different is that it recirculates that water. So rather than pulling in new water every time, there's a cleaning of the water and a reuse of it, or at least that's the theory behind it. What we've actually seen in practice is that some of these aquaculture systems are not really using water more efficiently than those flow through systems or are not using them as efficiently as they could be. So that's where this designation of intensity comes in. A super intensive, that's kind of the best RAS system, uses 0.5 three cubic meters of water per kilogram of fish produced each year. An intensive system is going to use one cubic meter of water. A low level system is going to use three cubic meters of water, all of those per kilogram of fish produced each year. And then we see something like a flow through system that's going to use 30 cubic meters of water per kilogram each year. So there is a big differentiation even between that low level system and a flow through system. And, you know, as Jenny, as you said, not all facilities are created equal. So a good example is something like the Nordic facility in Humboldt County, California. So that facility says that it reuses 99% of water. And sometimes when people talk about RES systems, they like to just look at that percentage of reuse as their only figure for understanding the water consumption. But Nordic is still inputting 12.5 million gallons per day of water to the facility. So this is something that policymakers and community members alike should be paying close attention to. Not all RAS systems are really that judicious when it comes to water usage. So just because that RAS label has been slapped on the facility doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be more water efficient, even though that's kind of the promise and the premise of RAS. 
So now on the other hand, you have facilities like Superior Fresh in Wisconsin. This facility uses what is termed as an aquaponics system. So aqua for aquaculture and ponics for hydroponics. And that means that they actually grow leafy greens as well as raise Atlantic salmon on the same campus. And that creates a water reuse cycle between the plants and the fish. So the fish, you know, use the water, they swim in the water and release effluent into the water. And then the plants are actually able to clean that water in a really natural cycle between those two. And then it's reused in the fish tank. And in a system like this, it is much more likely that you're going to see some complete recirculation of water. Still, facilities like Superior Fresh are much smaller often. So at full capacity, Superior Fresh will produce 1.5 million pounds of fish annually. And at that Nordic facility, you promised 25,000 tons, which is about 50 million pounds. So the scale of the Nordic facility is almost 50 times that of the Superior Fresh facility. A through line I found in my research generally is that it's much more difficult to maintain a true recirculating system the larger the operation gets. So it's obviously much more complicated than just this, but if you're an RAS newcomer trying to figure out a kind of a quick and dirty way to know if your neighborhood facility will be closer to that super intensive positive RAS designation versus low level or flow through, the larger the facility, the less likely it is to be super intensive and the more likely it is to use almost as much water as those flow through systems. Which facilities did you consider as part of this report and what was the most surprising finding about each of them? There were three that were our main focus. The first was the Aqua Bounty facility in Albany, Indiana. The second was the Fax facility in Åland, Finland. I might have mispronounced that, so sorry to any Finnish listeners out there. And then finally, that Nordic facility in Humboldt County, California that I already mentioned. So... How I've been phrasing Aqua Bounty is Aqua Bounty looks great on paper, not so great in practice. One example of this is that the facility's National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System permit limits the amount of biochemical oxygen demand, or BOD, ammonia, phosphorus, total suspended solids, and pH discharged into Indiana waters. But as of this recording, Aqua Bounty has exceeded its effluence limits for eight out of the 12 quarters since being issued that permit. Most notably, on July 8, 2020, Aqua Bounty voluntarily reported noncompliance with the permit limits for ammonia without providing a cause. Another interesting thing about Aqua Bounty is their use of genetically modified salmon. This was actually the first animal organism that was approved by the FDA for human consumption. So there's been plant organisms that are genetically modified, but this is the first genetically modified animal organism. And the reason for using genetically modified salmon per the Aqua Bounty company line is that they require 25% less food over a lifetime than salmon bred in a sea cage operation. And often feed contains fish meal and fish oil. And this really strongly connects land-based aquaculture with unsustainable wild fishing operations. So that's something they're trying to get away from existing on land is those wild fishing operations. But if you use high levels of feed with fish meal and fish oil, you are still connecting. So there was a 2016 lawsuit centered on concerns over potential escapes that required the FDA to consider all environmental risks and redo basically their approval of that Aqua Advantage salmon. They are now in the middle of 
performing an additional review of that genetically modified salmon. So we'll see how that turns out. But one of the things that came to light amid that renewal of the review is there was a former employee of the Aquabounty facility in Indiana who released this report called Aquabounty Exposed. And there was evidence from this former employee in that report that the disposal methods that were promised to the FDA and promised to the public to make sure that these genetically modified fish are not escaping the facility, breeding with local salmon, which would be a huge problem. If they breed with native fish, they might have offspring that are kind of half genetically modified, half not genetically modified, which could have really troubling implications. So this former employee recounts multiple instances of improper biosecurity measures, including using duct tape to repair nets, pests like frogs and rats present in the facility, disposal of dead fish in an outside dumpster where other animals in the ecosystem may consume them, which is obviously not the the methods that Aquabounty promised. To move on to FIFAX, FIFAX came out of this a little bit more unscathed. So they have an exclusive use of renewable energy. And generally, RAS requires a lot of energy to recirculate that water. So having that exclusive use of renewable energy is really a strong way to combat that energy intensity. And they are also looking into a way to further minimize their energy use by capturing the heat that the fish produce for energy to power the facility. They use their sludge as fertilizer. Sludge is kind of the waste produced from the process of fish farming. And that's not exclusive to FIVAX. That's something that other operations do as well, but something I wanted to highlight that they do that is really positive. There are some issues at FIVAX as well. In 2017, the facility faced criminal liability for high concentrations of nitrogen and phosphorus in grow-out water. This water overflowed from a runoff water pool used as a temporary water purification during the construction phase of the facility, and FIVAX was fined for that, and their CEO actually face criminal charges. They have also faced water disposal challenges. Overflows from a large circular tank used for denitrification resulted in spillovers of plastic ball-shaped biomedia onto nearby land. And then finally, the GHG emissions associated with bringing their eggs to the FIFAX facility are really high as they transport those eggs from South Africa. So that's a little bit of the kind of state of affairs at FIFAX. And then the most surprising thing I learned about Nordic is that it's being built on a former brownfield site or a current brownfield site, a former industrial site. And while this means the company has to do things like asbestos remediation, it also means they can use existing infrastructure, which can be a really great sustainability practice. And it's definitely best in terms of sustainability to locate these facilities on brownfields rather than doing things like proposing a development on previously untouched land for this land-based aquaculture, which is an industrial and potentially hazardous operation. And so now to get more into your evaluation process for these facilities, what are some of the environmental metrics that you've used when evaluating each of them and how did they perform? Yeah, yeah, good question. So I feel like I, I talked a little bit about how they performed here. So I might just speak a little more generally about what we considered environmentally throughout the report. And that was waste, land and water discharge, water consumption, ecosystem impacts, feed, energy, water quality, GHG emissions, and land use. So at its best, here is what you know, land-based recirculating aquaculture promises to do in each of those realms. So in terms of waste, Treatment of sludge is more manageable than waste disposal mechanisms in marine aquaculture. You can imagine that that waste in a sea cage operation is going to go straight into the ocean, whereas in a land-based facility, there's a lot more opportunity to control that. 
In general, RAS discharges fewer contaminants than does traditional aquaculture via effluent and air emissions into nearby ecosystems. Again, you can think about a traditional sea cage operation that's going to be much more integrated into the local air and water than something that exists inside a building. Water consumption, as we've talked about, sometimes RAS systems don't hold up to the promises they've made in terms of water consumption, but at its best, water use for RAS systems can be up to 100 times lower than traditional aquaculture. That said, there is a risk of metals being introduced into RIS filtration systems, including aluminum, due to the nitrification of water in the treatment process, and that can result in those effluents being discharged as contaminants, which wouldn't be the case in a, in a marine or flow-through operation. In terms of ecosystem impacts, we see that land-based aquaculture technology decouples aquaculture from the marine environment, thereby reducing the risk of sea lice and other diseases that pose large challenges for traditional aquaculture. This also reduces the need to vaccinate fish or use antibiotics or pesticides. While the risk of fish escaping is also significantly reduced in land-based aquaculture, it is not entirely diminished. And there is that high concern of non-native fish being released into areas where they didn't traditionally live. In terms of feed, the energy associated with producing feed is the highest point of energy consumption for most aquaculture systems. And it also connects land-based aquaculture systems with those wild fishing operations, as I mentioned. Energy is one of the main concerns for these recirculating aquaculture systems. As I hinted at earlier, when you are recirculating that water, there is a lot of energy used and often that energy is sourced from fossil fuels. And sometimes the energy for RAS is reported as more than double of a closed net system. Similarly, GHG RAS releases more respiratory carbon dioxide due to the water treatment mechanisms than other forms of aquaculture. And finally, land use. RAS requires that land is flat, easily drainable, and close to a water source. And that is the type of land that is also desired for other uses like urbanization and wetland conservation. Now that you've outlined the different environmental metrics that are important to consider when thinking about these facilities, I'm curious to hear what you think is one area of sustainability innovation the land-based aquaculture culture sector should be paying attention to? Yeah, there's a lot of innovation happening in particular, I would say, in the energy space. So that is historically the most criticized element of land-based aquaculture. It's no secret that growing fish on land is more energy intensive than in the sea. I mean, you can even think about that logically. You have to transport the water. You have to make sure that water is being pumped in and pumped out consistently and being cleaned. And the sea is kind of that natural environment that isn't going to require that same energy usage. So that's where most of the investment in innovation has been in that, in that energy space. And I talked earlier about some of the things that FIFAX is doing, capturing the heat that the fish put off to power the facility. I think that's a really interesting idea. Another innovation that I, I highlighted earlier, but I'll highlight again here, is, is aquaponics in general. So the idea that you can grow both leafy greens or, or another vegetable or fruit and then also fish at the same campus. So... Just to shout out some other facilities that are doing that, Clean Fresh Foods, also in Wisconsin, ECF Farm in Berlin, and Upward Farms in Brooklyn. And finally, this is not necessarily an innovation, but as with most things in life, thinking and eating locally is generally better. So that's one of the best things about land-based aquaculture is that it can bring the fish to you. So as U.S. consumers 
opt more for fish and plant-based diets, making sure that there's consistent sources of fish for those inland markets is going to be really important and also can help us reduce our GHG emissions in transportation, not having to fly that fish in from the ocean or, you know, truck it in. So... Those are some of the things that I think are really positive sustainability highlights for the land-based aquaculture sector. Thank you so much, Georgia, for sharing your perspective today. Yes, thank you. Maria Irene Handock is a visiting attorney from the Philippines with a Master of Laws in Environmental and Energy Law from Georgetown University. Irene, I'm excited to talk to you about your aspect of this work, and thank you for speaking with me. Hi, Georgia. So thanks for having me on your program, and I'm happy to share about UAE and the progress of this study. Yeah, of course. So of all the countries in the world, UAE has been chosen as part of this research project. What sets it apart? Yeah, so this is actually very interesting. So we've run a couple of research about several countries, including Japan and South Africa. And what struck me the most when it comes to the UAE project is that it has a land-based operating aquaculture project running on RAS facility. And it has been producing organic salmon despite their arid region. And it has been successfully operating also. The products has already reached the local markets and has been distributed successfully. I think this is a good model country to look at because there were a lot of innovations, especially in technology and policies, encouraging aquaculture itself. Another striking feature of UAE is a strong campaign on sustainable practices, including, of course, the use of land-based aquaculture using RAS facility, and linking that to their campaign and food security in the region. UAE has a strong demand for fish. So it's really a good model country to look at. And maybe we can learn more about policymaking and legislation in that area. Yes, I totally agree that it seems like a great model country. And I'd love if you could talk a little bit more about what their framework for regulating aquaculture and land-based aquaculture specifically looks like. Aquaculture in general, I think, benefited the administrative restructuring and reorganization that took over time. So right now, the UAE has the Ministry of Climate Change and Environment, and it really includes in all of its jurisdiction most elements of the environment. In that way, it regulates almost everything in its power, which promotes, of course, synchronity in the region. And there's a lot of coordination between the Emirates and the federal government. So when it comes to aquaculture, they adopt the bottom-up approach. When I say bottom-up approach, the permitting process starts with Emirates, and any proponent or applicant of an aquaculture farm would start coordinating with Emirates in their jurisdiction. And in return, these permits will be uploaded into the portal of the Ministry of Climate Change and Environment. And they form part in the documentary requirements, which the ministry will check late before the issuance an aquaculture establishment farm license. So um, in this way, it's really organized and simplified. Another feature that's also distinct when it comes to UAE is that they have streamlined the process in return. Over the years, they've developed this and they now use actually 
an online portal, which is administered by the Ministry of Climate Change and Environment. And a while ago, I talked about the permits being uploaded into the portal. And in this way, it promotes more coordination between the Emirates and the ministry itself. It seems like one of the things that UAE has done best is figure out that coordination between the Emirates and their federal regulatory body. Is the relationship between the Emirates and the federal you know, regulation in UAE similar to kind of a state versus federal framework in the United States or, or are there differences there? The UAE does the opposite. <laughs> they have federal structures, but here in the state, the states are more independent in their own jurisdiction in the UAE. At least when it comes to the aquaculture regulation, there is a close coordination between the states and the federal government because of the creation of the Ministry of Climate Change and Environment, which ultimately oversees everything in the UAE region. So in part in the states, it's very different in a way that the states will always have their own independence when it comes to overseeing their projects in their own jurisdiction, subject, of course, to some federal legislation and federal rules that would be applicable also, independent of the types of industry. Given those differences, how could, you know, as you know, we first started working on this paper using Maine as our scope of focus. So how could a state like Maine, per se, learn from UAE, even though there are those differences? Right. Similarly, of course, they can apply what we have learned from them, especially when it comes to the streamlining process. Even if their structures are different or their administrative organization and institution are differently designed, we can pick up most probably the lessons when it comes to the streamlining process that the UAE is implementing. As I've said a while ago, the UAE has adopted the streamlining process through their online portal. In the same way, the states, I think, can adopt this by creating most probably an online portal also where they can regulate and oversee almost all of the requirements so the states in themselves can oversee the progress of these projects and at the same time promote a more coordinated regulation when it comes to aquaculture projects and owners. So I think that's a really strong lesson that we can all supply in the States. Well, thank you for giving voice to that lesson and your insights more generally on the UAE and its regulatory framework. I appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me, Georgia. Finally, we have our project manager, Cynthia Harris. Cynthia, thank you for joining me. A pleasure to be here. So I wanted to end this episode with you as the project manager. You're also a researcher on this project, specifically looking at Canada and California, as well as developing a case study for the recently approved Nordic Aqua Farms facility in Humboldt County, California. After hearing from Elisa and Irene about the U.S. and UAE, as well as Wisconsin and Maine, I'd love to know how you would sum up these two other jurisdictions. Well, absolutely. It's been quite an adventure and educational process for me, too, looking at you know, California and Canada, which are very different examples. But at the same time, there are some similarities. First and foremost, if we start with California, we have to talk about the California Environmental Quality Act or CEQA. 
listeners are probably familiar with the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, and they should know that CEQA is to NEPA like a whale is to a minnow. Pretty much any type of activity needing government approval, say for a permit or a license, and that doesn't qualify for an exemption or a streamlined review undergoes an environmental review. So environmental review comes in three different flavors. You have your negative declaration, your mitigated negative declaration, and environmental impact report, or EIR, because we love our acronyms. So an EIR is carried out when an activity, like a development or capital infrastructure project, has potential for significant environmental impacts. And you brought up Nordic Aqua Farms in Humboldt County, and that was a case for that as well, too. The lead agency, there are two, but let's focus on Humboldt County itself, is responsible for issuing a coastal development permit and a land development permit. And they hired a consultant to draft the EIR. Now, the EIR, clocking in at a cool few hundred pages, determines whether an activity could potentially have a significant effect on the environment. It lists feasible alternatives and proposes methods for minimizing or altogether avoiding those effects. So the EIR for this one addressed impacts like to habitat, water quality, hydrology, noise, the list goes on and on. And the county planning staff consulted with responsible agencies, which also play a role in approving the project. So, for example, the Regional Quality Control Board and the California Coastal Commission, as well as trustee agencies, which have jurisdiction over natural resources like the State Department of Fish and Wildlife. So the lead agency's decision-making body, which is the, the elected officials, they have to certify the EIR to demonstrate that they've taken into consideration all these environmental implications before they approve it. And there are also public participation elements, including notice and comment. And the lead agency, the county in this case, has to respond in writing to every single public comment that raises significant environmental issues. So that is the environmental impact report. And I just wanted to touch on a couple other items before we look at Canada. So a land-based aquaculture facility that wants to pursue its California dream needs to obtain a number of permits, but the key ones would relate to land use and water quality. So for water quality, you need a NIPTES permit from the local regional water quality board. And I think, Georgia, you're, you're touched on that already with the lease and the Clean Water Act. Is that right? Yes, I think so. Yeah. So I won't reiterate that, but for land you'll probably need to both a conditional use permit or CUP and a coastal development permit, CDP, from the local government. And sometimes a CDP from the California Coastal Commission. There's layers and layers. But the primary question for a CUP is whether aquaculture is a permitted use in the area you want to build your facility. And developments in the coastal zone, usually the land within a thousand yards from the mean high tideline requires a CDP which means the approving agency agrees that your facility conforms with the local coastal program under the California Coastal Act. The last thing to mention is on energy use in greenhouse gas. So if you start the approval process now as the wannabe operator of a land-based aquaculture facility, that issue might actually take care of itself. 
That's because California has renewable portfolio standards that ratchets up the percentage of energy source that must come from a non-carbon-based source like wind or solar over time. So that's California. I'll pause and see if you have any questions before we dive into Canada. No, I think your overview was really comprehensive. I'm excited to see what you say about Canada. All right. Well, Canada is an interesting one. Canada has a fractured system governing aquaculture. There are three frameworks. So there's one just for British Columbia, one for Prince Edward Island, and one that applies to the other provinces and territories. There is a common thread, though, that regulation for land-based aquaculture is shared between the federal government and the provincial and territorial governments, with local governments making the land use and development decisions. So Fisheries and Oceans Canada, or DFO, issues permits for aquaculture operations under the very conveniently named the Fisheries Act. And those establish baseline requirements and conditions, including for effluent discharge and other impacts. And then the provincial and territorial governments typically also license aquaculture operations, too. So that's everyone else. Now, you're probably asking about British Columbia, right? So in British Columbia, the federal government is the primary regulator. Why is that? Well, you can blame lawyers. All right. So following the British Columbia Supreme Court's 2009 Morton decision, the court said, you know what? Aquaculture, it's technically a fishery. And guess what? Fisheries under our national constitution falls under the federal government's purview. So everyone said, okay, what do we do now? So what they did was the federal government and British Columbia wrote up a memorandum of understanding which defined everyone's roles and responsibilities. And DFO has a special set of regulations just for British Columbia. So the province still has jurisdiction over land use and siting and certain environmental impacts. So that's British Columbia in a nutshell. Prince Edward Island entered into an MOU with DFO back in 1928, and it renewed it in the late 1980s. So DFO has jurisdiction over aquaculture licenses, which is operations, and then leases land tenure through its very own Prince Edward Island Aquaculture Leasing Division. So that's Prince Edward Island. And I just want to add something about environmental review. So like in the U.S., environmental review is triggered by some governmental approval. The question is, does issuing a federal aquaculture permit trigger environmental review? Actually not. And this is from the early 2010s because regulations that implement Canada's Environmental Assessment Act, our northern neighbors, NEPA, was updated in 2012 and it exempts aquaculture. And then we have in 2019, a whole new revised version called the Impact Assessment Act, which also seems to exempt aquaculture, which means it falls to the provinces and the territories to do that. So one key item that several jurisdictions require in their own environmental assessments is how the project proponent plans on decommissioning the facility after the end of its operational life. And that's not something we see a lot in the U.S. And that's something we recommend in the report. But all this may change after going through all that, Georgia, making you, you listen to that. Is 
Canada recognizes that the system's pretty messy, to say the least, and it's been working on a unified approach, a federal aquaculture act. So we'll just have to wait and see on that. As you're speaking through all of these different regulatory mechanisms within Canada, with California, and definitely you mentioned at least one point, an area where that could be a recommendation for the United States, you know, something Canada is doing that we could co-opt, thinking even about what Elisa and Irene talked about in their areas of interest. What are some of these strong policy recommendations that we're getting for state and local officials when it comes to regulating land-based aquaculture in their backyards? That's an excellent question. I would see a really strong environmental review requirement and one that incorporates public input. Some states actually do have their own what are called mini NEPAs. The joke is that California came first and it's and the federal NEPA is actually a mini CEQA. So California, if you want to get a sense of a very, very robust environmental review framework, you can look at California. As far as Canada goes, there's this element of decommissioning. Once a facility ends its operational lifetime, now you have this big industrial facility and what's going to happen next. So that's something that local policymakers or that certain companies like Nordic, like Fivex, like Aqua Bounty might be looking at their community as a place to propose a facility. So you really need to consider, is our community an appropriate place for this? And if so, which areas are best to, for zoning this kind of use? It's an industrial use. It tends to be near a water body. So you need to think about all these things in advance if you think that your community is going to be seeing interest in developing land-based aquaculture. So we often talk about environmental impacts, but really this is a land use decision at core. It might trigger state and federal requirements, but local planning commissions, local county elected bodies, local city councils, they really have a huge say in this. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear you say that these are things people need to be thinking about before aquaculture even comes to your area. If you could continue with this research, where would you go next? That's an excellent question. I'm really excited to see where Canada goes with the Federal Aquaculture Act, because that's going to change a lot of things. It will provide a unified licensing approach. And it'll be interesting to see how that would change how provinces and territories react, how they might adjust things, how they might work hand in hand with the federal government. And I believe that Canada, they've issued a report for general public feedback from the industry as well. Now they're working with First Nations to get their input for formal consultation. I'd also like to see how Nordic Aqua Farms progresses. There is litigation, unsurprisingly, and they still need to receive a few other approvals regarding effluent discharge and also from the California Coastal Commission. But this is really the first industrial scale land-based aquaculture facility proposed for the state of California. So they're very much the guinea pig. And we'll we'll see over the next few years. Well, I hope that we get a chance to look into those issues more deeply or somebody else takes up that task. I have really enjoyed working on this project alongside you and hearing about your insights today as well as throughout the project. So thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. 
Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.